Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and I have been away for the last few weeks just on vacation traveling. So apologies for not giving everyone a heads up. It was I thought I could do some episodes while I was gone, but that did not happen. So but now we're back. Um it's May August and uh excited to be back and start covering Pakistan and the broader region and what's going on. So today I figured we start with Bangladesh. Um and the reason why I figured I start with Bangladesh is a lot has happened a lot has changed in the broader South Asian region because of where covid is where the delta variant is uh Bangladesh of course was the fastest growing economy during the pandemic in the subcontinent it managed to do that despite the fact that um covid really impacted its export sector particularly ready made garments um but despite that uh the economy continued to grow strongly it was one of the few economies in the world that actually did not go into recession um despite heavy lockdowns despite its garment sector um suffering throughout the pandemic and exports have not recovered um so far to the level they were at pre pandemic so i figured that there's a lot to chat about what happened in bangladesh what is going on what the outlook is um and so joining me today is atif ahmed um atif is a south asia expert based here in dc um keeps a very close eye on all things bangladesh and so he's going to be talking to us about what he sees are important lessons important developments in bangladesh that perhaps those of you listening and and uh, listening to this in pakistan pakistan can learn from um what are things that perhaps bangladesh is getting wrong and there are things that others may not want to repeat those mistakes so atif thank you so much for joining and just a caveat for those of you listening we may have some audio uh, issues dc has had some really crazy storms over the last couple of days so everything sounds good for now but if it does uh, please do excuse us for some poor audio quality so atif welcome to pakistanomy thank you sir it's a pleasure to be here i want to begin with you know a broad overview of what's going on in bangladesh of course in pakistan over the last few months every once in a while there is a social media debate about how bangladesh is now doing so much better than pakistan how its gdp per capita is now uh, larger significantly larger than that of pakistan's uh, but i want to talk less about that and more about the pandemic and the outlook for 2021 and beyond so help the listener understand about what happened in bangladesh in the early months uh, of the pandemic with the lockdowns with the export sector and how is it that bangladesh despite that heavy lockdown despite its exports collapsing managed to have a positive economic growth rate sure yeah so let me start off with a more uh, sort of a broad overview of things as they're going and you know not take and brush aside or take things a little less seriously but the start of the pandemic sort of came from migrants in italy and it was quote unquote manageable until sort of early 2021 by manageable i mean like there were you know the initial general holiday that was announced it happened and then things sort of went back to sort of normal um frankly masking was fairly light but yeah i mean testing was limited and there of course were underreporting of cases and deaths but again there was a false sense of sort of calm and sort of ease that you know things are fine um the story is unfortunately changed by a lot um huge cases have sort of been the narrative in bangladesh and again in context of course if you look at the new york times you'll probably see you oh, know it's averaging only 16,000 17,000 cases on a 7 uh, 14 day average but again the reality is very different on the ground and it's in a much higher level now than it was and sort of the reasons for it was sort of a sense of complacency kind of similar to india to be honest 
Um, and this sort of coincides with Prime Minister Modi's visit and Bangladesh's sort of 50th, uh, 50th um, birthday celebrations. And, you know, um, yeah, it, I think there was a sort of explosion of cases from March. And you've seen sort of an ineffective management of the surge in cases and sort of a sense of complacency uh, before that period that I mentioned, and, you know, just to reiterate again. Um, so again, what has been the characteristics of what's been going on COVID-wise in general has been that there have been multiple lockdowns in Bangladesh with sort of arbitrary relaxations and lax compliance in most of them. Sort of, um, they started off with regional parts in Dhaka, that, oh, this part of Dhaka is now in a lockdown, you can't go there. And that's highly impractical, as you know, our listeners in South Asia will know that, oh, you can't go to the bazaar here and you have to stay inside. Like, that's not that's not feasible in South Asia. It sort of really suddenly came about. And then, you know, you have two-week lockdowns extended to, actually, one-week lockdown extended to one week and another week. And people are like, what's the logic behind all this? And by the third week, the police aren't really even, you know, maintaining it. So um, kind of, again, before go, going into sort of the broader e economy question that you had is there, I think a few points that I'd like to make is that, you know, the government, unfortunately, um, in this sort of the carelessness theme that I mentioned, hasn't sort of been able to support the vulnerable as much as it probably should. Um, Bangladesh Bureau of Statistics uh, stats have shown that households are eating less protein, uh, meat and fish, uh, which is a sign that, you know, the households are cutting back, they're reducing their spending. Some are even eating fewer meals. More and more households are now eating two meals instead of the three, and children's food intake has also gone down. Um, and these are all parts of surveys that I think the Center for Policy Dialogue has also done. Um, so it's funny that we're talking about this, about lockdowns. Uh, the relaxation of the Eid al-Adha lockdown was today. Everything is quote unquote again back to normal. So we'll see how that is in two or three weeks. And you know, uh, another sort of point that we saw at the start of the pandemic in India, sort of people having whiplash, the migrants going to all across India, having no support, and then coming back when things are again normal. We're seeing that in Bangladesh as well. Um, a lot of people who don't call Dhaka home, it's where they work. As soon as a lockdown happens, rush the countryside. The lockdown is relaxed, rush back to Dhaka. So that just sort of starts this things, you know. Um, how should I put it? Like it's sort of whiplash on people. And um, two more things before I get going to the export is that, you know, currently uh, the lowest rate of vaccination in South Asia. This is very different from when vaccination started in South Asia. Bangladesh was probably um, near the top of the per capita vaccination and the rate at which, again, distribution isn't really the problem in Bangladesh. I think the biggest problem, again, the carelessness and the laxness of the government, a theme we're going to you know keep talking about. Um, the Serum Institute was sort of um, seen as the cure-all for Bangladesh's, you know, vaccine sort of supply. And it made sense, you know, you have them, you have uh, the Serum Institute right next door doing the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, and, you know, the, they did trials for Sinovac or Sinopharm. I'm not exactly sure which ones. The Chinese sort of didn't initially handle it well. So the government put all its um, eggs in that basket. And as we saw when India had that huge surge, um, the Serum Institute stopped all sort of exports, you know, through COVAX to Bangladesh, again, through agreements that Bangladesh paid for. So Bangladesh has received, received some vaccines through uh, the U.S., through Moderna and Pfizer, um, Japan through AstraZeneca, and sort of um, China is now pushing a lot of its Sinovac vaccines. And there was a minor scandal in which um, China was seen to be giving Bangladesh much better rates than it is to a country, especially in Africa, I believe sort of a lot of people, and so the Chinese weren't particularly happy that those rates were sort of leaked. Um, and a uh, couple things, the, there was sort of movement of the Sputnik vaccine, 
And um, as Russia is seeing a surge, currently nothing happened on that. And there is a deal for 70 million J&J vaccines, which should happen uh, soon. So kind of giving a broad overview. And last bonus point, uh, not really a good bonus, is that currently, unfortunately, there is a dengue outbreak, as uh, Bengali called dengue. So that's also driving a lot of uh, anxiety, fear, and people with COVID and uh, dengue. Uh, hopefully, again, it doesn't go too bad. But this is, uh, it. you know, uh, the rainy season just happened, so it's going on. So yeah, it's not the entire time, but um, I think, yeah, so sorry, go ahead. I was going to say like, I think that's been the most interesting thing about the pandemic and, you know, on social media, people sort of comment that, oh, you know, for example, I was putting up initially when the vaccines were uh, Bangladesh was doing well, India was doing really well, Pakistan was struggling. Um, the doses administered per hundred people, Pakistan was nowhere to be seen on those charts and Bangladesh and India were going up. And then, of course, India's outbreak happened. You explained what happened with serum, et cetera. Now, Pakistan, those administered per 100 people is ahead of Bangladesh. So it's more like a marathon, right? And governments must stay focused. And one of the things that has been interesting to note is how, at times, governments and people, societies in general, not just in South Asia, around the world, have sort of declared victory against the pandemic uh, much, much sooner than anticipated or then much sooner than they should have. Um, and the virus has a mind of its own and it mutates. And now we have the Delta variant. And apparently in Indonesia, there's a Delta plus variant. Yep. Um, so we'll see where things go. One thing that also struck out to me was that Bangladesh also had very early on um, a certification scandal in terms of people having negative certificates. Help the listener understand about, you know, what happened there. And like, the, is that also part of the evidence that you were talking about, you know, lax attitudes and things not going as they should, or at least the pronouncements not being implemented in the way as they should have been. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, again, excellent observations. And, you know, I think the the sort of the certifications together that we talked about early on, uh, it's funny, something actually just, uh, there was a news, uh, I think, what, two or three weeks ago, that one of the online, uh, not one of the online, but one of the healthcare providers in Bangladesh, which sort of did a really good job of going to people's houses, you know, testing them in the comfort of their homes, all wearing PPA and everything. Um, they were just busted for giving negative, uh, well, you know, false uh, results to people. And um, again, that's uh, that's driven a lot of concern among people that, wait, this is a private hospital. And, you know, people pay out of pocket mostly in Bangladesh. They're sort of expected there to be more quality. And unfortunately, um, that's not been the case. And um, the initial scandal was, I think, you know, this hospital owner sort of was giving just whatever the hell he wanted, like negative, positive, negative, positive. And um, yeah, it was just, uh, he got caught and there was, a, he was made sort of, I think like, you know, you really don't hear how these things really end up like in the middle, like you hear arrested and then black box and then, oh, he's released or, oh, like uh, we don't know what the hell happened to him. So I think, you know, he was sort of made an example off of it. But in this point, I do want to real um, specify that the airlines um, do have specific uh, testing sites where you have to go get tested because they only trust a handful of places to give you get to give like a real good PCR test with the you know an actual whether you tested negative or positive. So yeah, I think there's that and um, yeah and, and and you know one one quick point I'll make on the sort of the declaring victory theme, which is I agree with you wholeheartedly, and um, I think it's interesting. I think you know when when we here in the U.S. in sort of December and January are seeing this massive spike, you know, as the vaccines are about to be rolled out, of course, to healthcare workers at first. I think there was this sort of total opposite in, in Bangladesh, at least, where people are doing fine, they're eating out, you know, 
and everything. And I wonder how much of that has to do with the weather, because, you know, over here, when it's winter, we all stay inside. And as we know, inside, it's more likely to get COVID. Whereas in the, in the subcontinent, when it's actually cool, people like to go outside and hang out a little bit more outside and sort of finally, you know, they don't have to be inside and be in the air conditioning, the same, you know, not even recycled air. So I wonder, like, you know, maybe in December and, you know, when the weather's cool, you you had sort of the South Asian leaders sort of go, oh, you know, like, yeah, we're, we're down, like the cases aren't going to go back up. Like, it's fine. We're, we're fine. And of course, in the summer, as we know, people go inside to get into AC. So and they also started the- using, yeah, I was going to say they started using AC and everything sort of yep. like is more enclosed uh, in spaces yep. as well. Exactly. And it's, and as you know, we, we all, and you know, it was there like us being in DC in the humidity, it's hard to keep a mask on properly. So in South Asia, at least in Bangladesh, where, you know, you have, you know, what we'd say 100 degree Fahrenheit days in the, in the US and, you know, 35, 36 degrees Celsius with 80, 90% humidity, people probably are cheating on wearing their masks. So, you know, practical problems, of course, abound. And this is, I'm sure this isn't unique to Bangladesh. I'm sure India, Pakistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka, all, you know, probably dealing with similar things. So, yeah. So, so now, as you understand, that poses a conundrum in my mind, right? So you initially mentioned um, people are spending less on food. Nutrition is becoming a problem. Some are cutting back from three to two meals a day. Um, the data on the export side doesn't look too great even now. Um, but Bangladesh's economy continues to grow strongly. How mm-hmm. is that happening? Like, help me and help the listeners understand. Like, why is it that despite all of these issues, Bangladesh continues to have the fastest rate of economic growth through the pandemic in the subcontinent? Yeah, no, again, another excellent question. So first of all, yeah, to to reiterate the point for listeners, um, export receipts have gone down by a lot. Um, April to June of 2020, uh, export has declined by 51% year on year. So that is a massive decline. And again, of course, Bangladesh uh, exports don't make up a large part of the economy, but still a 51% hit on a quarterly basis on your exports is massive. Um, so, and, and again, coming back to this talk about GDP, um, the, the fiscal year 1920 GDP growth numbers were sort of recently released by the Bangladesh Bureau of Statistics. And there's a lot of internal politics going on between the Minister of Finance having one view, um, and they sort of had this idea that growth would be 5.24% um, annually, I believe. And uh, instead, it was revised down to almost, it was almost halved to 3.51%, which is a 30-year low for Bangladesh. Um, now, the, the, now, again, like, I don't want to get too much into the nitty-gritty of the politics between, but there have been questions about these GDP numbers um, for a fact. And, you know, and I think I read a CPD uh, sort of briefing that said that even if Bangladesh averaged 2.54% growth, I believe, it would still be probably the fastest growing economy in South Asia and globally as well. So again, maybe we need to step, maybe I need to step back and sort of say maybe the, the things aren't as bad as they look. I was um, going to say so that ha- the 30-year low that you're mentioning uh, in terms of even three, three and a half percent, like by Pakistani standards, that is pretty good growth. Yeah, yeah, no, I think uh, in Bangladesh, I think that the initial aim pre-COVID and everything was 8% growth, which was sort of a little unrealistic. I think everyone expected maybe in the 6% growth and, you know, as, the, as we're saying, the 5.24%, which probably is more of a pie-in-the-sky number, of course. But no, I think that it's uh, it's undeniable that Bangladesh has grown. So sort of um, how has, you know, to answer the question is, how has Bangladesh still been able to do um, this sort of growth, even with uh, things 
uh, you know, being so terrible. So one of the interesting anomalies has been that uh, remittance numbers that, you know, the foreign, uh, non, you know, foreign Bangladeshi send has actually increased uh, year on year uh, by, by, a, by a significant amount. And um, there have been questions why, and I guess a government scheme in which they have sort of, uh, so one of the government schemes that they have done is sort of uh, when, when sort of uh, Bangladeshis send money to Bangladesh, and I think you have to be in you know, the Gulf or some level, um, you basically, the government will take care of some of the fees. I think they give you a bonus if you send it through an official channel. Um, so I think that what has done is what we call in South Asia Hundi, as I'm sure, you know, um, the illegal sort of uh, bringing of money back and forth. I think that sort of has brought more remittance to the government channels. So that has probably helped. Um, another thing has been that Bangladesh had, uh, and there have been a s- series of uh, stimulus, I think uh, in around $8 billion mark, which obviously is nothing, but for a country like Bangladesh, it's still a lot. Uh, the government has increased liquidity um, by large amounts. And we're going to get to both of these things with liquidity and remittance later on. But I think both of these trends seem to be, well, at least for remittance, the, the, there are concerns that the trend is faltering. And for liquidity, um, there are sort of worries that the banking sector hasn't really been managing this largesse, if I can call it, really well. So, of course, you know, the, the private investment has gone up as a result of this liquidity um, and that has probably helped keep up a lot of the, of the economy propped up. And it's sort of, you know, Bangladesh is a huge internal consumption um, based economy, kind of, I wouldn't say similar to the US, of course, but of course, like internal consumption on service sectors and a lot of other things is, is, is huge in Bangladesh. So maybe people, even though the spending has reduced, it hasn't gone down to that much effect that I think, you know, uh, or maybe the data hasn't caught up yet. That is also definitely something that could be the case. And, you know, um, and, and yeah, before I move on to the to the last point I want to make, I think the agriculture and service sectors have done well, uh, relatively speaking, and they have had a huge. And they do have a very large. I think the agriculture I saw um, that agriculture may be around fifteen percent of Bangladesh's economy, and service sector, which is a much larger, broader catch-all, is about fifty percent of the economy. They have seen growth. So what you have seen is overall like those things have sort of propped up the economy in a way. Um, but yeah, the last the last point that I want to say, I think, is that even though the GDP growth number is impressive, no question about it, there are sort of underlying weaknesses um, that, you know, uh, that, that need to be discovered. And I think I read in the CPD brief um, that, and by the way, they're a fantastic Bangladeshi think tank. They do a lot of great stuff on their website, a lot of great surveys. I think they raise a lot of questions about sort of not so much the veracity, but the availability and sort of the calculations of what is being used to calculate GDP. So I think the question about GDP, and we and I have a few numbers late, which we'll get to later on, which are that the GDP probably doesn't adequately capture sort of the weakness, if I can put it, the fragile state of some parts of Bangladesh's economy. I think one of the things that stood out to me as, as I sort of followed through the subcontinent's economies, Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh, um, also, where the buffers, right? Bangladesh has because it has immense foreign exchange reserves. It's been more prudent fiscally over the years. Doesn't have a lot of debt on its books. Um, the government was able to the eight billion figure, as you mentioned, not huge by global standards, but for an emerging economy like Bangladesh, uh, it is a big amount. Um, it was able to do these things, and of course, they create issues long term, and those uh, we will get to just in a bit. But help me understand what has been the update with the large infrastructure projects that have been implemented by the government. There is a Dhaka Metro, there is a Padma Bridge. Um, and I find personally really fascinating about how Sheikh Hasina's government and Bangladesh over the years essentially 
has sort of balanced its relationships with everybody in the region. The Japanese build something, the Indians provide power, Prime Minister Modi comes on the 50th birthday, um, the Chinese are still involved, they're giving vaccines, the United States has obviously been there, it's a big market, the European Union is a big market. I help paint a picture about economic diplomacy because it seems to me at least that it is a very nimble, very deft, very well balanced approach to doing business with the rest of the world in a way that benefits Bangladeshis the most. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very glad you, you brought the infrastructure part up because it is indeed very fascinating sort of um, picture of, of what Bangladesh is and Sheikh Hasina has been trying to do. So let's let's um, let's isolate the pot the bridge away from the few the, the other um, infrastructures project because I think it's more unique than the other ones. The pot the bridge has been sort of uh, an election promise a sort of um, a clarion call for the Awami League to like sort of like we will get this done. We will connect you know the central part of Bangladesh you know through this bridge and you know con- bring connectivity and connect this sort of I wouldn't say forgotten part of Bangladesh, obviously not, but I think it's sort of a way to sort of get the base, which is the Wami League's traditional base has been the Gopalganj, the Furitpur, the sort of central close to Dhaka areas, which, you know, uh, don't have the connection that they would want. And people have been complaining about the need for a bridge for a while. So um, when the Wami League government swept into power uh, in 08, it started the process. It said, we are going to make the bridge. And then the World Bank sort of said, no, we don't really feel like giving you concessional loans. We don't really feel like this is worthwhile. And they probably underestimated Sheikh Hasina's willpower, to be honest. Um, and she said, no, there's no way that I don't do this. Like I promised, I'm gonna make this happen. I This is gonna be my legacy that I did the part the bridge. And, you know, I, I can't speak for India or Pakistan, but you know, the bridges, there's always these plaques showing, oh, inaugurated on this day by Begum Khaledazia, by, yeah. People uh, remember that, I still, I still remember, sorry to cut you off, like, yeah. I remember taking a trip up to Mari from Islamabad, like several years ago. And, you know, my my driver who was driving us, he was from Mari, and I'll ask him, talk to him about Mari. And, you know, this was like the mid-2000s, right? Nawashri was out of the country, he was still in exile, Musharraf was ruling. And this guy was like super excited about showing me this road, and he was super proud of the fact that it was Nawashrif that built the road for him, right? Uh-huh. And, and you know, he was like, now that Musharraf is here, they stop work, and he was really upset about it, and he was like, this needs to extend. And that speaks volumes, like to me, it was less about him being pro-Nawaz or whatever, but it was more about the fact that this road to this man is his livelihood, and he goes on it every day. He does business in Islamabad and is able to get to his family. And yeah, in South Asia, in developing countries across the board, even in the United States, like the infrastructure bill just passed, like these things have a local impact and people remember the leaders that make sure that, you know, they get the bridge or the road or the tunnel that they deserve in order to do their lives in a better, more convenient manner. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, in in this country, Eisenhower, you know, with with the interstate highway system. Um, sort of, you know, revolutionized what America connectivity. I think, you know, uh, I was listening to some, I don't know, some videos, some podcasts or whatever. I think it said like to take like a, a bunch of oranges from Florida to New Jersey back prior to the prior to the Eisenhower system would take like 50 hours or something. So by the time you get there, your oranges are screwed. Whereas now, if you drive straight up, I don't know, maybe like eight, nine hours, um, you know, so it's, un- and you know, this is a for- sort of the culture shock for me when I first came from Bangladesh, that wow, this is, this is insane. We went from, you know, JFK, from Newark to Princeton uh, so quickly. And then I was just doing the calculations. Oh my God, it takes like 
six hours to get from Dhaka to my my paternal um, village, and that distance is nothing. It's 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 nothing. So yeah, no, of course, like these things, you know, of course, in the U.S. we have an effect. Of course, in South Asia there is. So you know, the Potta Bridge, you know, and again to to get back on this, I think the Chinese sort of saw an in on the Potta Bridge. They realized this that look, like Sheikh Hasina has staked her. Um, I wouldn't say legitimacy, but her name, her her sort of idea as the you know the Sheikh the Mujib family, like this this so they sort of went in. They sort of provided a lot of um, how should I put it? Um, uh, a lot of technical advice, a lot of lot of on the ground. They put workers. They they've, they've been trying to help put a rail link in there, and of course, like this probably also helps China in the long run with BRI in general. They they very much would like Bangladesh to be in BRI, and they're trying to get you know, deep sea ports, you know, I think there's one going on in Paira, in Kul, uh, in, I think in Kulna in Bangladesh. So, the, you know, of course, like this plays, you know, this is China's part. And of course, like Japan has been this benefactor for Bangladesh for a long time. Uh, I personally don't really know the reason for it, but Japan really has sort of, even since independence, Japan has been like, look, this country is our friend. Um, they sort of have a lot of goodwill investments. Like there's no question the Japanese investment comes with very few strings attached, um, very good rates. And, and, you know, Bangladesh now has gotten better with this. And um, uh, But in the past, when things were not as sort of opulent, if I can use the term, um, Japan was very understanding, understood, and, you know, got rid of, uh, you know, was very, very helpful. So again, to, to sort of the, the broader... Um, uh, geostrategic angle, if I can put it, I think is that Bangladesh probably isn't a big enough player yet, if I can put it, that it really has to choose a side between this. And we're gonna and we're gonna get to the digital connectivity part. But today, a news article came out that Bangladesh is slowly going to start the five G rollout in in Dhaka, parts of Dhaka city. And of course, it needs to do it. It needs to get ahead on the times um, on this situation. So, what happens then? I think you know. Um, Bangladesh probably had did some work with ZTE back in the day for maybe it's 2G or 3G rollout. How's that going to go if they want to do work with Huawei? Um, I don't think the White House is going to like that. So, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a space to watch. It, it's it's definitely one thing to keep an eye out on. So you mentioned digital connectivity. Let, let's pivot to that. Um, mm -hmm. I read recently, it's a big mission. Again, Shikasina talks a lot about this. Um, it has been a topic of much coverage, you know, her son is involved in a lot of this efforts as mm -hmm. well. So she's again, state legitimacy, so to speak, after the bridge now on digital connectivity. What's the rationale and how, what, what is the government doing on a realistic level at on the ground level in terms of, you know, going beyond just pronouncements and doing things? Because from the reports I read, it is pretty interesting and I think it is the right step in terms of making sure that Bangladesh not only connects its people digitally, but also because of where its education rates are, because of the fact it's a young population, can really catalyze export-oriented industries in the telecommunications and IT sector, um, and at the same time, diversify its export space, right? I see that as an opportunity. We've also seen Samsung come in and start assembly of phones. So help us understand what's going on with this digital Bangladesh connectivity project that the prime minister is pushing. Yeah, uh, again, uh, excellent question. And, you know, I like the dimension of digital Bangladesh there, which uh, was sort of a, a huge platform of Sheikh Hasina, again, when she got elected in 2008. Um, and sort of this idea of Vision 2021, um, I believe. And sort of, of course, the vision is now a little murkier because of, you know, the vision basically included this idea of making Bangladesh a middle-income developed country, uh, an MEDC, I guess. 
And, you know, we can talk more about that. And um, yeah, so digital connectivity since 2008 has been on the menu for the Uami League and Sheikh Hasina. And you're right, her son, Shadia Ahmedwaj Joy, he's sort of seen as an ID expert and he's sort of her advisor in these things. And, you know, the government does take these things very seriously and they do, they have designated sort of high-tech manufacturing as a focus of the government. So there are these um, EPZs in Bangladesh, um, sort of which allow, you know, industries to sort of make their own factories, get their own land and sort of have their own rules and stuff, which has have been a in the fabric of Bangladesh for a long time. I can't tell you exactly when. So this has been the case, you know, where Bangladesh has two big companies and there are more, I know, I know there are more, but Walton and Transcom are the two big firms who make appliances in Bangladesh. And most of these are for internal use, uh, refrigerators. Um, yeah, I think uh, back in my home in, uh, in Dhaka where my parents are, I think the fridge is a Walton fridge, like one of the deep freezers of Walton uh, refrigerator. Uh, Transcom has been making uh, LEDs for a long, long time. We used to use Transcom LEDs all the time. And you know uh, the big, and you know I think they're trying to get into the smartphone market, or you know sort of the mid-range or the lower tier range smartphone, not the, you know the S the S twenty or whatever that we would have uh, that are sort of ubiquitous almost here in the city. Um, but I think you know there are, there are challenges because you have Oppo and other companies that are sort of breaking into the uh, into the market. And I would say this has been a characteristic of Bangladesh where I think the infant, I wouldn't call Walton or Transcom infant industries, but it hasn't done a really good job of sort of, um, and of course the protectionism in the end really hasn't been shown to really work out. But of course, like for a small scale economy like Bangladesh, maybe it can do a little bit more to help these companies get a bigger footing so it can sort of you know, compete with the likes of Oppo and other Chinese manufacturers that are coming in. So, you know, I, I kind of want to get into sort of a, away from the manufacturing a little bit to e-commerce, if I can do, if I can get into that, I, I would say that, you know, e-commerce uh, has sort of grown. I was reading this um, survey which said that the, the, the pandemic has basically accelerated the use of e-commerce in Bangladesh. Um, and sort of, um, it's, I think it's, I think I saw a survey which said that it would have to, it would be in like $3 billion in 2023, valued at $3 billion in 2023. And, you know, I saw, I saw this new story about this startup called Chaldao, which means, you know, like rice and rice and lentils, you know, the founder, I think this guy used to work in Silicon Valley. He went to Bangladesh. He got about $15 million in, in seed funding and he started doing it and people have been using it. And, you know, I think that there, there's sort of this romanticized idea in Bangladesh that e-commerce is going to take off and everything, will be fantastic, but I think there are lots of pitfalls. And I think, you know, one of the bigger ones being that, you know, it's hard to maintain service. You know, I think, you know, as we talk about infrastructure, don't want to make the, the theme of this to be infrastructure, but of course, like if roads and roads are bad and you have a terrible internet. I saw that Bangladesh is the third slowest mobile broadband in the world. Um, I actually don't remember the other, or maybe the second worst, I don't know, the, the two other countries who were worse than Bangladesh. So it's harder for people to connect and use it if your internet is crap, to, to, put, it, to put it straight to you. Um, yeah, and there's also, you know, the age old, I think the trope that, you know, there was about South Asia, about corruption and sort of all that stuff that we saw in the West. Unfortunately, that sort of has come into Bangladesh's e-commerce sector. Uh, there was a case of this company called eValley, which sort of had this really, and this sort of, these are sort of companies which do classifieds, customer, customer to customer, or a little bit more business to customer sort of thing. Um, I don't know if the B2B e-commerce has really taken off as much as uh, it, it probably should. 
Um, and sort of, yeah, the founders are found to be embezzling crores and crores of taka. And now there is this sort of, um, uh, they can't leave the country. They have travel restrictions against them. Like I think a company, the Jamuna Group has said, the money it put into E-Valley is now an investment. So of course, like this sort of the backroom dealing that's going on. This is a you know big problem for e-commerce coming on. And another thing, again, to go back to the, um, the infant industry thing, I also believe Facebook and Amazon are trying to put up a bigger presence in Bangladesh. And I think Facebook just paid like 2.7, 2.37 crores in revenue or VAT to the government and everyone, you know, <laughs> this is South Asia, everyone sees, oh, someone paid their tax, they just immediately get happy. So they just saw, oh, Facebook paid two and a half crore, you know, <laughs> taka in, um, in, in revenue. Oh my God, like, this is so good. They're so good. Yeah, screw these E-Valley guys who, score, who stole 300 crore taka. So, you know, it's it's stuff like that that's going on. Um, yeah, and, and sort of, um, what the government could do in this, if you know, to sort of wrap this up, in my opinion, um, this question about the e-commerce, I think you know the strategy has been haphazard. Part of it also has been though people are sort of concerned of what is kosher on the internet. Like, what can you do? What's going to get you in trouble if, like, you know, like who's who's um, who's sort of uh, share are you trying to eat? It, it's that sort of seeing if you start something. So I think a lot of things government really has to like. And it's, it's not just for e-commerce that people really have to start thinking that they can actually do stuff on the internet a bit more freely. Uh, internet access, I think I said, is huge. And also like service delivery in rural areas. You know, if you want to really connect, you know, parts of Bangladesh, such as the north northern part, which is typically seen as the poorer part, trying to get stuff from Dhaka to there to delivery. And eventually you'll need to because there are there's still like, like Taka has scores of people, but the vast majority are still outside of Taka. So you have to branch out. So how, you know, the government has to find a way to make that easier. And I also think that education has to be revamped. Um, and we're going to get to this, of course, later on, but the education institutions being closed is horrible. But I think there really has to be much more of a focus. And I don't want to get into the whole like, oh, learn a line of code, learn how to code, like that type of, you know, general statement about education doesn't help, but the government has to have a more serious plan about education. And the last thing I'll make on this is that I think the manufacturing sector, which had been struggling pre-pandemic, um, and I think the BBS stats, uh, the Bangladesh Bureau of Statistics stats shows that the index, index of industrial production uh, shrunk by 25% in April of 2020. That's a massive hit. So it really has to sort of you know, help uh, the break the cycle of cronyism, sort of, you know, having these companies that the government knows that they just let them go, you need more competition into it. And, you know, I think unless you can turn this pool of unskilled labor, which Bangladesh has been exporting to the Gulf for a while and sort of make them into higher skilled, it's going to be a tough sell for Bangladesh to really reap the benefits of this digital connectivity that the government touts so much and has been touting for decades. How big of an issue is corruption in like broader Bangladeshi discourse. And I ask this because it is by all means a one party state at this point in time. Mm -hmm. Sheikh Hasina's government is quite authoritarian. There are, it is nowhere, I mean, we talk about in Pakistan, Pakistani media not being free. You know, Bangladeshi media is even less freer than Pakistani media in that situation. And so what is the discourse like? What are the big issues people talk about um, is it corruption? Is it something else? Like help help the people, help the listeners understand like what the average discourse in Bangladeshi society is focusing on, is talking about where and how does this one party state that is being run by Sheikh Hasina feel pressure? Like what are the mechanisms through which 
change even policy political um happens in 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 this society wow that's uh that's i know it's amazing. a big i know it's a broad yeah, yeah. question i just want to get a sense like it just came to yeah, mind because yeah. you talked about infant industry arguments e-commerce companies stealing money etc so it's just a curious thought about like how does this society like have what what is the discourse all about yeah again a, a excellent question and sort of i think uh i'm not going to go too much into the history lesson on this but Bangladesh had a period of essentially military rule from uh, 2007 to 2008. I might, I might be late 2006. I'm not exactly sure of the exact dates. I did live, I did live through that in Dhaka. And sort of, sort of the caretaker government that was in charge in Bangladesh at the time legitimized itself as like, we're ridding the government, the country of corruption. Uh, we're going to make a truth commission. We're going to make an anti-corruption commission. We're going to lock up all these leaders from Awami League, from BNP, and sort of embarrass them, you know, like beat the hell out of them in detention, you know, and sort and of- And just so that people who not fully follow Bangladeshi politics, Awami League is Sheikh Hasina and BNP is Khalid Aziz's party. Correct, correct. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for adding that. Um, I, I always uh, assume people know, but yeah, it's uh, it's important to educate. But again, on this- um. So it's good to point out, I think, you know, to echo what Uzair said, um, Bangladesh is essentially a one-party state. Um, and there, you know, I think freedom of expression in a way in Bangladesh that it's sort of really curtailed. People are sort of, um, like the online discourse, you you have the typical leftists, like a few of them, like Zunad Ahmed Saki, who's sort of like, you know, these general sort of anti-government takes, you know? Um, I think if... Um, the one person, again, unfortunately, it's all in Bengali, Khalid Muhyiddin in Deutschevel, this reporter based in Bonn, I believe where Deutschevel's headquarters are, he's sort of the person that, who sort of brings people from the government and sort of into that, um, it, from the, uh, from I wouldn't say the opposition, but people who are not affiliated with the government. And sort of he has these talk shows. And if I can give one example, there's this uh, you know, prominent Awami League leader, Amir Hussain Amu, who's sort of sort of this uh, old leader. He's sort of part of the larger scale, you know, one of Sheikh Hasina's confidants. Uh, I believe Khalid Muhyiddin like had him on and he was asking him general questions like, what are you doing for development? And this is pre-pandemic. And Amu just in the middle of the interview just takes his head earphones off and he said, listen, listen, I've had enough. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Let's wrap it up. And Khalid Muhyiddin said, well, uh, like, are you done, done? Or do you do want me to ask you another question? He said, oh, no, 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 I'm done, done. Like, you finish this. And Khalid Muhyiddin's like, well, do you want to say anything else to finish it? He's like, oh, no, no, I'm done, I'm done. Like, uh, this is over. So, <laughs> yeah, so he just finishes it off. So I think, you know, in terms of the narrative, you see sort of like various sort of, I don't know, like, you know, pet, like you know, scandals, cricket, um, just general annoyance at the government. Um, the official space, and I, and again, like not as not as someone who doesn't peruse the dark web or anything, I don't know what people are really, really, really saying. But in Facebook and stuff, you do see comments which are critical of the government getting a lot of likes. You see, Twitter really isn't a big thing in Bangladesh, so Facebook, you know, you see people just just sort of dejected and everything. Those seem to get a lot of viewpoints. So people in generally are just like they're tired. They want they unfortunately a lot of them want to leave. Um, they, the cricket team is a big part of their discussions and currently, you know, and, and, you know, this, I'll, I'll end on this, you know, the hey, you guys, you guys beat us, the, the crap out of Australia. So <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it was a turning track. So it was much harder for the Australians to play. We'll see how they do it against and the Australians and their C team, but I think we won't hold that <laughs> against Bangladesh. 
No, I think I think it's a good confidence boost for them. But so people are sort of so actually it's funny that we talk about this. I think there is a very good nuanced discussion about the cricket team and what they're doing. As you said, you know, what team is this? Oh, how's the pitch going to be in the UAE? So I think like the the crowd, you know, the people consistently have shown on the internet they're capable of these sort of discussions, this, these deep, uh, serious discussions about matters. But I think a lot of the, the fear of the government and sort of how much can you speak up is a problem. And sort of you'll, you're seeing like um, foreign-based Bangladeshis, I don't want to call them dissidents, but sort of Bengalis who live outside, they're running these pages and they're sort of trying to bring more accountability. Um, and yeah, the, the last thing I'll say, I think this salacious piece of you know gossip right now in Bangladesh is this sort of the escapades of this one businessman who sort of had an affair and then the person like what happened and now they arrested someone who had who supposedly had an affair with another businessman and everyone's sort of lapping it up. So I think, you know, the, the cycle is very, you know, there really isn't the sort of traditional media cycle that we would see here in the U.S. that, oh, infrastructure, Cuomo, mansion and cinema saying that 3.5 trillion is too much. The discussion is very like different. And I think, you know, people sort of are just they're just sort of like, oh man, like this is just how life is, unfortunately. And I think, you know, uh, you people really need to break through this. And I think, and, you know, unless people break through it and really think of an entrepreneurial spirit for e-commerce purposes and the internet being so stifled, I wonder how much like people actually think of something great and they're like, ah, but what's the use? What's going to happen anyway? And they just don't do it, you know? I, don't I think, think the really biggest, helps, but yeah. No, that's important. And I think the biggest issue with all of that, right, is that you have societies that can and do engage in nuanced conversations when they're allowed to. I think the problem with stifling expression and stifling dissent in particular is not that society by and large sort of loses its ability to critique and criticize and do all of the things that people generally do. People still do that. They may do it behind closed doors. They may not do it. They may do it on Facebook. They may not, you know, watch television media as much because they fully realize that you know, what's coming on there is crap uh, and it doesn't reflect their lives or their lived experiences and shared experiences. I think the biggest issue ends up being is that those in power, the elites in power become complacent about their inability to reflect, introspect and take criticism and then answer to the criticism, right? Like the guy you're talking about who said, I'm done with the interview, like, you know, it's over. I think that is the bigger issue, right? Because you cannot have evolution of policy um, in that environment where those in power are not being held to task on a daily basis. And I think that to me is the bigger concerning point, which brings me to my question to you about the outlook for Bangladesh. You mentioned the fact that people are at times dejected. There are those people in every country. Bangladesh is still, I think, by and large, a success story, at least in the subcontinent, and is doing phenomenally well. Um, but there are underlying issues, the authoritarian nature of the state, who comes after Sheikh Hasina is a big question I have, um, but also broadly speaking about what does this country do um, in terms of diversifying its economy, its exports away from ready-made garments. And I think that is going to be a very tricky phase for the country. So how do you see all of this? Like, you know, we're halfway through 2021. Um, the budget exercise was really, you know, optimistic in nature, the pronouncements were like, oh, we're recovering, we're through the pandemic, et cetera. Clearly that's not the case. Where do you see Bangladesh going in, let's say the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah, no, the, um, 
Again, another excellent question. And, and you know, I think, you know, again, there, there are things to look forward to. And I think, you know, I was talking about the infrastructure projects, the Dhaka Metro Rail, the sort of the Podda Bridge, those will definitely help with connectivity. And, you know, in such a, um, the lack of connectivity in Bangladesh being such an issue, those things will definitely allow the internal market to, to heat up. And I think the growth can keep on going there. Um, but to counter that, unfortunately, there aren't the problems that exports aren't diversified. And Vietnam recently became the second biggest RMG manufacturer in the world, um, right behind China. Bangladesh used to be second, it's now third. Um, and there are attempts to sort of, you know, export pharmaceuticals and seafood, but those are, um, I don't know, those, are, those aren't doing as well as and when you go to OEC and you see what the share of it, and of course the data is still 2019, um, you see like those aren't really growing up as much. Um, and, and, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the few other things I think to, to answer this question, I think uh, to go back to the 2008 global financial crisis, having again, growing up in Bangladesh at that time, um, and maybe, I don't know how connected the whole world compared to now, of course, I think, you know, globalization has increased by now. Um, and a pandemic itself is unique. You really can't compare it to the global financial crisis, but Bangladesh sort of was largely spared um, by the global financial crisis. Bangladesh's economy grew. It was it did okay. Like it did, there was no precipitous drop in GDP or remittance or foreign reserves at that time. I remember going through that. So considering that we're in somewhat um, um, un unprecedented times uh, for Bangladesh's economy, considering this sort of a crash, you know, if I can put it as a crash. Um, you know, I think, you know, the near-term headwinds, if I can put it, you know, sort of the manufacturing, the construction, hotels and restaurants, transportation and storage, you know, industries, they've all been affected very badly. So the government has to find a way, and I don't know if it's just liquidity and, you know, cutting down on government cronyism is easier said than done, of course. Um, but these these sectors really need to rebound in one way or the other. And maybe, you know, who knows uh, if, if these concerns about this current variant going around sort of recede and sort of export numbers grow up for, and, you know, sort of export demand for um, uh, RMG and other things go up, maybe Bangladesh sees another rebound. And to, to the credit of the government, I did see there was a vaccination drive of RMG workers and they stopped giving the five and uh, the 50, uh, I think they have given half of the 55 million Moderna doses that the, uh, that the U.S. sent, and they're going to give the other half for second doses. So, so they're being smarter now. They do realize that we can't just give 55 million first doses and then wait for another 55 million to come through COVAX. We don't know when that's going to happen. And Japan has sent some AstraZeneca. So I think the government, I think it's learning that, hey, we need to be smarter about this. We need to, we need to go ahead and do more for this vaccination. So I think, you know, that could probably help mitigate some of this. Um, but, you know, uh, if the if the global economy doesn't recover and specifically places from where the where Bangladesh gets its remittance, the Gulf, uh, remittance could continue dropping. And this is, again, something that I saw Dr. Devapriya Bhattacharjee from uh, CPD talk about recently, um, decorated economist of Bangladesh. He said that he predicts and he thinks that, you know, this remittance could drop. And if that happens, you know, things get much tighter for Bangladesh. From a spending and foreign uh, foreign reserve standpoint, again, there is. I wouldn't go so far as to say a crisis. It's doing just fine. Like they, it has more than enough money in the bank, but the growth it'll it'll force them to be more conservative. Another headwind that I see, I think, you know, uh, again, I saw a survey that said that poverty is estimated to grow by twenty five percent in Bangladesh. Now, the government is, you know, graduated, quote unquote, to middle income status, right, from low income status, and you know, I don't know if the government has really thought out how it affects. Um, how should I put it? 
how it affects sort of the financing, how much money and grants and sort of what sort of mechanisms it now loses because it doesn't have a lot of preferential access. You know what? I don't know if the EU has any thoughts about all this. EU is such a massive market for Bangladesh. So what does that do? And, you know, 20, and again, on this, like even though the sector is picking up, I think someone estimated that 25% of RNG workers have been laid off. What happens with that? Um, you know, maybe again, if export export numbers go up, they'll probably coming back. And you know, I'm like, I, I don't know if Bangladesh will see sort of what we're saying in the US that a lot of workers just re, you know refusing to come back because you know, why go back to my 725 an hour job when you know and they're they're shopping around for better opportunities as they should. Why not? Why not? Why shouldn't they do it? I think it won't be the case in Bangladesh. They get a job offer back, they're gonna rush right back and join in. Um, so yeah, and, and I think you know, educational institutions being closed for over a year—that's a huge hit to learning outcomes. And you know, I think my my parents always talk about the learning drop off from the nine months of the war. You know, no one picked up a book, and of course, times are different now. There has been some e-learning. You know, people are some learning is going on, but my my mom specifically says when she went back to school, people couldn't write the alphabet. They couldn't write kakha bala. They couldn't write one, two, three, four. So, you know, what happens with that? Learning uh, severe, severe, you know, uh, scars, if I can put it. And, you know, I wanna, I wanna talk a little bit more about the banking crisis. You know, I think, you know, the, gov the central bank has sort of given a lot of leeway to a lot of banking um, sort of moguls, if I can put it. And they sort of, are, they have a broad idea, a broad leash on what they want to do. So all this money that they have, all this, and, you know, and a lot of the non-performing loans to these, um, businesses, sort of government connected people who keep defaulting, you know, like that's again, like at one point it's going to catch up, right? And what other time to catch it up to it other than, you know, a COVID induced pandemic recession. And if that happens, what sort of unrest could happen? So I don't know if that really, you know, if that's a, a very positive spin on the what headwinds and what comes up for Bangladesh. But again, I think, you know, it's good to look back and I think maybe we're, we're focusing a little bit more on sort of what the negatives could happen, but there is no question that the cost advantage that Bangladesh has isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Um, so that by itself, as we see, you know, this race to the bottom, if I can almost put it for people to just want things cheaper, 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 Bangladesh is, it's going to, it's going to stay. So yeah, I guess, I guess, you know, long-term, I think, you know, um, these things are definitely big problems for, for the government that they really need to do. And, from the larger standpoint of what we talked about from freedom and everything as well. And I think non-performing loans were already an issue that was being flagged mm -hmm. pre-pandemic by the ADP and by others as something the government needed to do something or the central bank needed to do something about. Of course, with the pandemic, it's been, you know, liquidity has been eased. So it is something that reforms. I mean, my whole view is that when times are good, you need to start planning for when times could get bad so that when they come, you can do the reforms and take the measures. And I think this is the time where people are warning that there are some issues in Bangladesh's growth success story. It is a success story, um, but it needs to sort of, you know, prepare for the next wave of success and can only do so by resolving some of these issues. My personal view on, you know, why I am personally bullish on where Bangladesh, for example, is going is the fact that its youth literacy is 90 plus percent. Yes, skills can be an issue. Um, yes, unskilled labor does go to the Gulf and that's an issue, but then they send money back in remittances. So it doesn't fully even out, but kind of evens out. But the fact that if you have a youth that is 90 plus percent literate, according to UN data, 
and then you give them the digital connectivity, they will hustle and they will figure things out. And you know, you just have to, in this instance, the government just has to get out of the way and just give them the railways and, and you know, not the physical railways, but the digital railways to do what they want to do. And then e-commerce and everything else will just take a hold. Uh, people are, especially in the subcontinent, really good in terms of their hustle and they will figure the rest out. And so the government can get out of the way. This has been a fascinating conversation, by the way, and I've learned a lot. I'm sure the audience who joined us has learned a lot. Um, so thank you for taking out the time. But before I let you go, I was asked my guests for two or three recommendations. Would love to hear your recommendations. It doesn't have to be about Bangladesh, can be on anything, but anything that you would recommend people pick up and read. Yeah. Um, again, thank you, Zair, for having me. And, and in terms of books, I would say Ghost Wars by Steve Cole is a fantastic read. Uh, currently, of course, considering Afghanistan is so much in the news. Uh, Blood Telegram by Gary Bass is another excellent book. Again, maybe my bias is a Bangladeshi, but really talks a fascinating angle on, you know, the larger U.S. game in Bangladesh, what's going on. Sort of a, a non-IR related books that I really, really um, inform a lot of my thinking, made me think really a lot, was Utilitarianism by John Stuart Mill and The Metaphysics of Morals by Immanuel Kant. I think, you know, short books, read them in my freshman year in college and um, yeah, excellent books. So I would I would recommend everyone pick those all all of those four, I guess, in this case up. So yeah. I think the blood telegram is is a wonderful and fascinating read. Um, and I think I read it in undergrad and it sort of opened my eyes. Not about, you know, you kind of had an idea. My family had some business interests in Chittagong and you know, in 1971, mm. everything wrapped up. And so I heard from my grandfather and even from my father to this day when I have conversations with them. You hear a lot of from him about you know what was going wrong in 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 East Pakistan at the time, and he was like, we saw this coming, and you know there was just not enough done to stop what was going on there. But to me, the fascinating part about reading the Blood Telegram it covers all of that those issues. Um, but the fascinating part was the U.S. approach to diplomacy and the U.S. approach to what was going on there, and how like really like not cutthroat but like immoral you know the white house at times was in its approach to the atrocities that were going on there and it sort of just shows you like you know um how just a couple of people sitting in a very powerful position can do a lot of damage to a lot of people millions in this case um mm -hmm. uh, in terms of what happens to them so i think that's a fantastic read um and all of them are fantastic it goes for the obviously yeah. is great i don't know if you've read director s um, that is a follow-up to Ghost Wars. It's a great book It's right too. there on my bookshelf. <laughs> yeah, it is fantastic. Yeah. Um, but thank you for all those recommendations and yeah. I've read all of them. They're great. So again, thank yeah. you so much for taking out the time and for joining us here today. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Was there. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you take care and then stay safe in the storm. I think it's receded and then yeah. didn't cut out our internet. So we're all good. Yeah, success. <laughs> take care. Awesome. Bye -bye. Yeah, thank you, Zay.